Welcome to the Atlas Airguns Podcast. On this episode, we talk to John from the Wingman 115 YouTube channel. From airguns to bushcraft, John has been making content on YouTube since its inception. If you want to learn more about John, Wingman 115, his journey into airguns and beyond, listen in. So, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you came uh, highly recommended by uh, Dana. So, I was pretty excited about it. I actually had watched, I think, a Talon P video from you back in the day. I mean, like <laughs> like 10 years ago, and you were sticking a, I think it was a Ronin, and there was a Pine Force, something like that, but you are sticking a Ronin on there. Oh, yeah, that's my playground that I go to. Uh, where are you uh, located? Out here in San Diego, San Diego County. Is that so a, lot, a lot of people think, you know, oh, San Diego, it's like Baywatch, the beach, you know, but we, we live such in a diverse ecosystem within an hour. I can transition from beautiful beaches to, you know, pine forests that are 6,000 feet. And then you have all the transition zones in between the high desert and chaparral. And it's just a beautiful place to, uh, play around in it you know it, california sometimes gets a bum rap but god it's such a beautiful state what part of san diego are you in like east side west side i'm on the south side of san diego uh i actually live in a town um well i don't know how i don't want anybody stalking me so if you come to my house i may not answer the phone uh, the door but <laughs> i live in a town called chula vista and we're we are famous for the Olympic Training Center. They have a big archery facility there. They have a BMX facility there as well. And uh, I'm about six miles from Mexico. Okay. Are you born and raised there? No, I was actually uh, born in Connecticut. And my parents were both from northern, well, from Maine. My dad was from the coast, a little town called Lubeck little trivia note the easternmost town in the united states and then my mom uh, was from a town called portage lake and in the late 60s they got tired of the city life and they decided to move back to my mom's hometown now portage lake is a town of about 500 people in the winter and if you're lucky maybe 2500 people in the summer and most of those people are from new england or or New York, you know, that came up that summer up in, up in Northern Maine, but it was just a beautiful place to grow up and, and to be a boy in the, in the seventies and early eighties. And behind my house was just raw wilderness. So as a young kid, I mean, we felt like Lewis and Clark, you know, we would behind our property, we had a railroad tracks. And then after that, it was like, you were venturing into the unknown and it, it was just a fun place to grow up. Did you uh, ever bump into any animals that were uh, scary for you as a child? All the time. I mean, in the, before a lot of the woods got clear cut and then the topography changed, you know, the way that the trees grew back white-tailed deer, I mean, was very abundant 
in the 60s and 70s and black bear and now with um you know the advent of them clear cutting a lot of timber because a, a lot of northern maine is owned by private large private lumber companies and you know they go in and their job is to make money harvesting wood so they do and now surprisingly you know the white-tailed deer population in northern maine is very low but the moose population has just exploded and also the black bear population so it's really sparked a whole new industry as far as like guy hunting and guides and and such my mom who had been an avid hunter i mean ever since i was a little kid ever since she was a little kid she had hunted with my grandfather who was a logger and um i mean she probably about 20 years ago she had got a moose permit and finally got herself a moose so we were pretty proud of mom so why do you think that is that the 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 explosions happening specifically with bears and, and moose rather than deer well when they when they cut a lot of the hardwood the hardwood groves, you know, these are places that the whitetail would would yard in the winter. We call them, you know, yarding is where basically they're held up and they're eating, you know, the acorns are eating whatever the whitetail deer eat. And um, a lot of those places got thinned out, you know, and the winters are so harsh up in that region, you know, in up farther north that if like say a pine cone fell and and started into a seedling it would take about seven to nine years for that seedling to get about two feet tall so that gives you an idea about how long it's going to take for that force to regenerate itself and you said this happened in the like late 70s the late early well you 80s. know they've been harvesting timber up there probably since the 1920s but with the industrial revolution it i mean they were able to go in there and just cut quite a bit and it what grew what grew back made it the perfect environment for moose because up in that region there's a lot of lakes there's a lot of ponds it's boggy it's just perfect environment for the moose to thrive in and when you know all the little scrub brush and stuff started growing back before you have the actual trees break through and grow it it just made a a perfect environment for that sort of animal not good for the uh, white-tailed deer now southern maine because they don't cut as much i mean it's just crazy it's like nothing's ever changed for the deer population but up north i mean it's just a paradigm shift and same thing with the black bear as well because the way you know, berry bushes grew back and such. It it just made it a good and a good environment also for the black bear. So I mean, there's two industries now that have popped up where it adds a lot to the local economy up there. So at what age did you realize that you loved outdoors a little differently than the average person? Well, for me, you know, I grew up in a time before the internet. And, you know, I don't want to say like TV, but 
where we were, we were so remote. And this was before cable TV. I mean, we only had three channels and one was a French Canadian channel, the CBC, because I mean, New Brunswick was only 30 minutes away from where I grew up. And one was a PBS channel. So another one's a tri-affiliate. My mom, no matter what the weather, unless it was like 20 below zero, it's like, you're going to bundle up, get outside the house, go out and do something, make forts out in the woods, do whatever. So I always uh, hung out with my grandparents as a young person, just for something to do, because, you know, we, there was kids in town, but you know, their houses are a, a little ways away from each other. So my grandfather, who was an avid woodsman, he was a logger. He was a French Canadian immigrant that immigrated to the United States in the 1920s. And they were logging when they were cutting trees and yarding them out with horses and doing the log runs on the river and such. So he was a very accomplished hunter and a trapper and I probably started, he started taking me fishing and my dad taking me fishing. There's photos of like, I'm maybe five or six. And then I would go, I remember tagging along hunting with them up until the age 12. Cause back then in Maine, you couldn't hunt until you passed hunter safety, obviously. And then, um, and then at 12, you could hunt um, actually you could hunt unsupervised, which was crazy, but it was a different time and different things were expected out of certain age groups back then. And remember at the beginning, I told you, we had this vast forest behind my parents' property. So we, my dad had my first venture in the air guns, obviously was the old Daisy, um, pop gun, you know, lever action, red, red rider type. And then, uh, when I became 12 and got my license, my dad bought me, uh, a 22 410 over and under a brake barrel gun. I think it was a Harrison Richardson. And I wish I still had that gun, but I mean, 22 rim fires were so cheap back in the day and 410 shotgun shells. And we would, during season, obviously, go out cottontail rabbit hunting, squirrel hunting. Uh, we would hunt rough grouse in the fall. And then, you know, we'd join our parents, go to deer camp and such. But um, I really didn't get into air guns until an adult, probably about, I want to say, 12 years ago. And uh, it was a customer of mine because I manage a large grocery store here in San Diego, a customer of mine had come in and uh, we were talking and one thing led to another. And he goes, yeah, he goes, I'm hunting with uh, with pellet, a pellet rifle. And I started laughing, you know, because we all think of pellet rifles as the Red Rider, you know, oh yeah, don't shoot your eye out. And he was like, dude, you got no idea. He goes, we're, I'm going to take you out. And I'm like, okay. So I was thinking, you know, oh, all right, you know, maybe a brake barrel or whatever. But um, he had a RWS Hammerly 850 and he had it in 22 caliber and that's a CO2 gun. And, um, you know, it's the weather out here doesn't get cold. So with CO2 
anything above 60 degrees, it's going to perform really well. And out here, you know, the average temps in the summertime, 80, sometimes 90. So that gun was working, I mean, optimum. And we were out ground squirrel hunting and I was, I was like, oh man, this is fun, you know? And then he bought a Benjamin Discovery. And then I wound up going down the rabbit hole and I bought a RWS 850 and also a Benjamin and then it's like potato chips. I mean, I started buying <laughs> air guns like crazy. So at what point did you decide to go down the YouTube, you know, YouTube labyrinth? Because that's a journey in itself. And I've seen your videos around for a while. So I know you've been around a very long time. Can you tell us how you got into it and what year that was? Yeah, sure. The year was 2006. And a lot of people don't realize that when YouTube started, um, it was actually an online dating service and no people are going to ask, you know, Hey, did you get on there and online? No. When in 2006, but right. I think around in between 2005, 2006, they realized that that wasn't going to work for them in, in how they did business. And then they, um, because of eHarmony, I think, and all that other stuff. So they started transitioning over to, like an open source, you could upload videos. So at that point, I've always been into photography. I've always loved video cameras. And um, I was like, hey, yeah, I'm going to post some family outings. I can share them, you know, with my mom back in Maine and things like that. And so I was on YouTube for a couple years like that. And then I had always been involved with uh, the scouting movement in San Diego. And I, um, was doing a, a class where I was teaching folks backpacking and how to, you know, set up your gear for backpacking. And we started talking to some of the parents and, uh, I mentioned something about YouTube and, um, of course, nobody knew anything about that at that time. It was really new. And they said, Hey, why don't you post some videos of gear that you suggest that way parents at the troop could look at that and make a better informed decision on what gear to buy. So I thought about it for a little bit and I was like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. So I started posting videos like that. And, um, one thing led to another and all of a sudden now, you know, I started reviewing gear and then, you know, I, I met my friend who was in the air guns and it was just a natural progression. Then I got in, I integrated archery into that because I'm also love traditional archery and knives. And it just became a big version of all the hobbies that, that I love to do. And it's just been a fun ride this past 15 years. Has there ever been a point where you've just wanted to walk away from it? Because I know there's been a lots of ups and downs with the, the YouTube content creators like 2007. I think there's a hiccup there for a second. Has there ever been a point where you've just kind of like wanted to walk away and like, oh, man, I'm done with this? I think, I think every content creator uh, feels that way. You know, there's, it's like anything, there's always going to be a peak and valley. And there was a time uh, when I was making videos where for a while, it wasn't, quote, fun anymore. I felt like it was turning more into a job. 
than it was turning into a hobby that I had a passion about. And I had stepped away for a little bit. I hadn't posted as much. And then um, a, a remarkable thing happened. And, and you know, I, I was talking to a friend about this a, a couple of days ago. Um, I, and I told him, I go, you know, what we do, like even with your podcast and, and all the social media that you broadcast on, you never know who you're going to affect. And a lot of people get bummed out, you know, gee whiz, I'm only getting a hundred views or, you know, I'm only getting 300 views. And I tell them, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's that one view that matters. And I had a kid that reached out to me a while back, a couple years back. And he said, uh, I've been following you for about 10 years. And I just wanted you to know that I really appreciate you. My father passed away when I was like six or seven and I learned a lot of man stuff uh, from watching your channel. And man, I, I tell you what, I when I read that comment, you, I, I thought the wife was like cutting onions uh, down in the kitchen because the eyes watered up a little bit. And I was so humbled because you don't realize the effect that we have on the viewer, on the listener. Uh, and... I think a lot of us, you know, take that for granted. And it, that was like a turning point for me where I had a new passion. It was like, you know what, what you do matters. You have a voice, share what you know. And, and I don't ever claim to be a know-it-all. I don't want to be a know-it-all. I, I always say that I'm a student and I, and I'm never uh, going to stop learning and, and I just like always trying to find out new and exciting things, you know, and that that's what's cool about air guns, too, because 10 years ago, you know, everybody thought, oh, you know, when high pressure air hits, you know, that's going to be the benchmark and that's going to be the end of it. And it's like like today, it's like, no, this is just the beginning with space age materials and now electronics the way they are and some of the velocities and the, and the ballistic coefficient that they're getting out of these air guns is right up there with powder burners. It's just insane. Yeah. I always think of, uh, I always think of the QB days, you know, everyone is modifying these QB chiefs and, you know, like the, the discoveries and all these like smaller kind of beginner PCP rifles, but they're really trying to, you know, bump them up to get, you know, excel in velocity or change out the barrel. And it was an interesting time for like a good three or four years. And yeah, it's just, it's big advancement, obviously last decade. Oh, it's, it, to me, I equate it to like, uh, the wild west, you know, when, when the cowboy and the, and the industrial revolution started to blend together, you know, and I think now we're we're at that point where the technology, I mean, the sky's the limit on on what they're going to be able to do. I, I'm really excited because even if you look at like some of the super steels and in the way that CNC machines work and and all that now, as opposed to like 20 years ago, it's just amazing what they can do now. Even Back then, you know, now today you have 3D printers, so you can do a mock-up of something really quick to see, okay, 
ergonomically, is that going to work? No. Okay, let's do that. Change it. And you're able to do it pretty cost effective as back in the day, it was really expensive. When I first got out of the Navy, I worked in the aerospace industry for about five or six years. And, you know, it, back then, I mean, it was very labor and cost intensive and everything that you had to do on a CNC machine. Nowadays, it's like, okay, I'm just going to automate it, kick it in the computer, you download your your blueprints, your 3D model, boom. And it, hour later, you got a breach, you got all sorts of stuff. It's just insane. Well, so what brought you into the Navy? Was that a, just a decision to get out of Maine or was that wanting to explore? Well, you know, I was a young guy. I was working at a mill called Pinkham Mill, and it was the largest lumber mill east of the Mississippi at that time, up in uh, up near Ashland, Maine, about 13 miles from where I grew up. And um, I was working in the planer mill. And we would have a shift where you'd go uh, two weeks days, two weeks nights. And this happened to be a February and I'm working a night shift. Well, being the young guy, you know, you got to go out and do the, the dirty jobs, you know. And so I got voluntold to go out to the dry kilns and to um, basically supply the rough cut lumber for the planer mill. Well, the dry kilns, how they dry out the rough lumber is with steam. So it's 20 below zero. There's steam out there. I'm like a human icicle for the 10 hour shift. So I get off work, I go home and, uh, you know, this is 1983, 84. And, uh, my dad, who's old school, you know, Hey, you got to better suck it up. You know, he tells me, he goes, boy, you got two choices, either go in the military or go to college. He goes, I don't want to hear you cry about it. So I was like, okay, you know, I went down. Next time I had a day off and saw the Navy recruiter and July 10th, 1984, I was headed to Chicago, which was a big culture shock for a guy that lived in a town of about 500 people. And how long was it until you were in the service? Well, I went to boot camp that July. So I, I was, I was officially <laughs> July 10th. Um, I wound up getting stationed out here in San Diego. I was in an F-14 squadron, VF-21, shout out to them, the freelancers. And uh, we were in, in the same hangar as uh, Top Gun. So everybody thinks that's all glamorous until, you know, it's like mowing the lawn. Y'all think it's fun to do till you have to do it. And um, then the movie Top Gun came out at the same time. So it made for an interesting time. I mean, I did five years in the Navy. I deployed a couple times with them. Then I settled in San Diego because uh, my wife's from San Diego. Worked in the aerospace industry, and for the past 30 years, I've been in the grocery industry after aerospace kind of petered out here in SoCal. So when you were uh, deployed and stuff, were you pursuing any kind of outdoor activity that you know later cultivated into your uh, YouTube content? Well, um, my job, uh, I was an aviation ordinanceman, so we we dealt with all the weapon systems on the aircraft. So they had a M61A1 Gatling gun. It's a 20 millimeter 
round. That's for the Warthog, right? Oh, it's, uh, well, they also have them on F-14s, F-18s have them. Um, General Electric makes them. They also have them in the system they call the Phalix system, which is a counter major, uh, measures system against um, missile attacks on surface uh, warships. So th- these guns will fire 100 rounds a second. So, I mean, we had little, we had black box computers in there where we could control bursts and such like that. So a pilot, if he didn't hold on to the trigger, didn't go through the whole drum full of ammo in one shot. So had that, we had uh, Phoenix missiles, Sidewinder missiles, Sparrows, Chaff and Flare. But uh, when you go to, when you go to school, I mean, they teach you through explosive school, how to, you know, bombs and all that good stuff. And so when I transitioned out, um, at that time, I really, I really wasn't um, doing a lot of shooting and hunting like that because my day job, I mean, we were, I, I got to test fire like the Gatling gun on F-14. You know, when we swap it out, you do barrel swaps, you take the gun out, you got to take it down to the bore, bore sight range and uh, run some rounds through it and then sight it in. So, you know, that was fun sitting in the cockpit and firing 20 millimeter. But uh, for the for the A-10 Warthog, you'd be a good guy to ask this. Is it true that they can they can stall out from the firing of that and that they have to like make a dive so that they don't they don't stall essentially? That I don't know. You know, that, that bird's such a heavy bird. Right. That, and, and they're, they're not going as fast and that's what makes them effective in what they do. It's just such a, almost like a flying tank. And it, um, I don't know, but on a, on a Tomcat and on an F-18, there ain't nothing slowing that bad boy down when, and they're, you know, they probably have to slow down to fire the gun. That way you don't run into any ammo. That's crazy. So you, you got back into it at what point, the film, filmography and outdoor kind of stuff? Well, when video cameras transit, I, I hated VHS. I just hated it. And then there was an awesome adventure uh, called 8 Millimeter in a small cassette and i was like whoa okay this is a game changer it's small because who wanted to carry like a a two by six on their shoulder and i i had done that in the early 80s uh in film class in high school we played around with video and and i was always into photography as a young guy but um you know i when the eight millimeter cassettes came out. I was like, okay, I, I'm getting into this. And then like the, it was just a natural progression when it went digital cameras, you know, I had to buy all the latest digital camera. And then, you know, when YouTube started, we all thought, oh my God, 360 and 480, that's like so cool. But now it's like, man, you know, everybody's going, oh man, I got to watch it in 360. So the transition to to high definition 4K 
you know, I, I think right now, uh, hopefully 1080 and 4k will last for a while. I think it's a good medium who, who knows though with 5g now there's eight K cameras and I don't, I don't know where it'll stop, but I love it all. I mean, I got so much film gear here at the house and that's, you know, another thing too, when we're out filming, you know, like you talked with Dana, you mentioned him early, him and I have done some collabs together on hunting trips and folks do not realize how much work goes in to filming a hunting trip because a lot of times we're out there by ourselves. So we're the cameraman. We're also in front of the camera. You got to make sure the sound, because if the sound sucks, people aren't going to watch any videos. And then you hope you're in frame. So anytime I can get a friend or a relative to go with me and go, yeah, you're in frame and hold the camera. So it doesn't fall over. It's a good day. <laughs> The audio itself, I mean, I do a lot of, um, you know, the more, more I progress on this program, the more I get into audio engineering and it's a labyrinth. Like it's, it's a deep, <laughs> deep hole that you just step into and you're like, man, this is just audio, oh, yeah. let alone video. I used to do a little video on the back in the day, but it is, uh, like if I do a reel just for fun on Instagram, like a 10 second reel could take an hour and let alone one of these videos that you guys are producing, like Dana or you, I mean, hour, like a 10 minute video that's that's like three days four days of hard work yeah and it's a lot of pre-planning you know especially now with gas prices the way they are you you gotta almost you can't never shoot too much film or video you just can't shoot enough because you never want to get home and go oh man, I forgot this shot or I forgot that shot. So before I even shoot a video, I'll make a shot list. I'll do a video outline, kind of where we want to go, what we want to talk about. I'll usually talk to um, either a designer or somebody from the company and I'll ask them, you know, to tell me a little story to kind of add a little personal touch to the video and kind of, you know, make it my own. Cause you know, how many other air gun outdoor video channels are out there? Right. So you just want to find your little unique thing, be genuine and have fun. And the past 15 years I've been blessed, you know, I've had a chance to do a lot of really cool stuff and review some cool stuff. And, uh, I'm excited about the future. I mean, there's, a lot of cool things. So let's talk about maybe some anecdotes of you on the field with this camera stuff and just hunting or whatever it is. Have you ever destroyed any equipment? Because I mean, if you're looking around, let's say 50 pounds of equipment, that's I'm at least prone to fall and you know break something like a microphone. So have you ever had anything like that happen? Luckily, I have not. Um, I don't by by God's grace, I have not dropped a camera. If it's not, if it's been knocked over, it's uh, it's not been damaged. Now, there's times like when I when I shoot air guns and also in archery, I put a camera down near the target, and 
a lot of people, especially shooting the bow, because I shoot, I don't use sights. I do just traditional instinctive. And people go, oh, my God, are you so worried about hitting the camera? And I, and I tell them, I go, I'm not looking at that camera. I'm looking at my target. Because if you look at the camera, guess what, what you're going to do? You're going to hit the camera. It's just like anything, shooting a basketball, hitting a baseball. You know, if, if you're looking at it, you're going you're gonna to hit it. So it's like, I, I don't, other than when I'm doing dialogue, intros, outros, something I have to say, yeah, I'm looking at the camera. But when we're doing action stuff, I'm not looking at the camera because I, I don't want to destroy it, you know. And that's a good thing, like if you can have somebody with you, it uh it makes it better they can protect it a little bit you know but i'm gonna knock on wood here in my studio and and say as of yet hopefully it doesn't happen so you mentioned the you know the finesse that you really want to be in if you're a content creator at least for your channel to set yourself apart from other channels what do you appreciate in content since you are a content creator what do you appreciate in other people's content well, I think as a content creator, we're all storytellers in one way or another. Whether I'm doing a review, you know, on like I did a review on the Benjamin Akela. You know, I went out, did a little bit of, took some hunting footage, stuff like that. You want to tell a story, you know, and if I'm doing a review, the item that I'm reviewing is the star in the movie. And you're focusing on that. So as long as you're telling a story, you know, like in one of my inspirations, you know, and we mentioned him already is Dana mountain sports, air guns cinematically. I mean, he, he does a really good job and it pushes me to do a, a, a better job. Me myself in filming and story outline and just trying to capture the right shot. And um, just to, convey the message correctly you know there's a lot of times i watch video and folks didn't take notes and they're talking about something and they misquote it and accidents are going to happen i misquote too but the the viewer a lot of times thinks unfortunately like we're a representative of that company when we're not and you know they're a lot of times I'm getting questions and stuff like I'm the, uh, the rep for, you know, product X and I have to tell him, you, you know, you have to go to the link that I provided and ask a question there, you know, because I don't want to, especially in stuff like air guns, knives, archery equipment, a lot of liability. So I don't want to give you information that you may use the wrong way and then in the society that we live in now you know all of a sudden you're out of business so a lot of times i'll i'll send them to the company for more information on stuff like that but you know it all boils down the story it ha it has to if you want anybody to watch the videos yeah i feel like when dana came out that video it really set a new bar for a lot of people and i think that it just really had a ripple effect through the air gun community. And I'm not saying, I mean, there's people out there that, you know, love FX and there's people out there that hate FX and there's people that love day state and there's people that hate day state and so on and so forth through all the brands. But that video just apart from the analysis of how each one of those three guns did, 
that video was like setting a new bar. And I think that it, it is going to be something that a lot of people are going to have to, you know, pick themselves up and be like, man, I need to aim to do a lot better. And there are content creators that do a great job along with, you know, just like Dana. But I think for the rest of us, you know, it's like, oh, that's a, that's a high bar. And that's like a good one to, to aim at. Yeah. Well, you're not going to make any friends with some of the, some of those companies doing, um, tests like that, you know, and as a reviewer, you got to be thick skinned and okay with that, that you have to be objective. And unfortunately, I'm not going to call out folks, but there's a lot of folks that aren't objective. And, and if something doesn't work, you got to say it doesn't work, especially now, you know, I, I have a lot of respect probably because I, as a kid, I watched my parents work so hard for their money. And especially right now, you know, with gas five, six bucks a gallon, if somebody's going to spend money on a, on an air gun, whether it's a mid or a high level or even an entry level, I want them to make the best informed decision that they can and know that if they watch one of my videos that I'm doing my very best to try to uh, show that air gun or that product in a real world use type thing. Um, there's, and I've said it before on other podcasts that there's times where companies send me stuff and I, I send it back. I'm like, no, I, I'm not going to do this. One, my time is very valuable. Some people go, yeah, you need to make those videos and do that too. No, because only have so much time in the day and I'm going to focus on stuff that one, I know people want two that is going to bring value to a person. And I mean, value either it's very quality item or you're getting the best bang for the buck. There's going to be trade-offs obviously with the lower price gear, but there's still some good gear that's affordable and it's just trying to find that that market and be able to share it with folks so in that regard you know what what we do i think is really important um but yeah when i when i saw that one video i was like i called i called him up i was like oh my god this is gonna turn the this genre on its head and i i think it has I think it has. I think it's going to force more people to step up their game and be better reviewers. And I think as a viewer or as a consumer, we need to demand that from the community as well. That if you're going to represent, whether you're an enthusiast, a competitor, a reviewer, that you owe it to your fans, to your subscribers, to your customers, to um, be objective and, um, offer the best information that you can. Yeah. I had a, uh, one podcast where I mentioned that maybe one or two, it's my least favorite gun right now in the markets, the Umarex hammer. I just hate it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I shot it. I mean, I, this is out of personal experience and I just, I think it's dangerous. That's really what I think it is. And I think they rushed it or they didn't, I don't know. They didn't do whatever they should have done. And it was kind of a cool design in some aspects, but then, you know, it's, it's execution with the blowout. It's just 
to me, it's kind of crazy. But um, I mentioned that and a few people like pushed back on me because they loved it. And I said, you know, just my opinion, you know, ultimately, I mean, I could be totally flawed on uh, I am flawed in all kinds of ways. So, you know, just take it with a grain of salt. And there's all kinds of things like speaking about that company, like they, the gauntlet, like you just mentioned, a, an affordable, great gun. Like, I think the gauntlet is a great gun. I don't have one, but I've shot it and I think it's a great gun. And I think there is, I think consumers can realize they can realize those differences and the nuances in in buying a gun and when it's worthwhile to pursue something that's a budget item versus when you're making compromises. That's my personal opinion. But I wanted to ask you, when do you think, or how, I'll phrase it this way, how do you think content creators or reviewers should be critical? And I know that's a really hard one to ask, but how should a content creator gracefully be critical, maybe outside of a review and inside it? How would you go about that? Well, one, I think we owe it to the reviewer, one, to respect them and their time, right? So with that, you know, there there's items, like we'll say, I'll, I'll give you a real life story. I, when I first saw the um, Benjamin Trail, I think it was the brake barrel gun that they had, pistol, and I think it's a Benjamin Trail. It, yeah, like that Benjamin Trail NP. Yeah. And it was their first generation one. Well, I bought it. I take it out. I'm not, I don't even shoot it like 50 times. And the moderator on the front's cracking. The barrel alignment's off. And I mean, I was honest in that review, even though the air gun's what, maybe 70 or 80 bucks? But say the average person makes 20 bucks an hour. That's four hours of their life they gave up to get that item. I want them to get the best bang for the buck. So I, I told them I didn't feel that this gun was worthy of a purchase. Let me tell you what, that cost me uh, big time with Crossman. I went to SHOT Show. They, as soon as, as soon as I showed a business card, I mean, they, they ran me out of there and I was okay with that. Cause you know what? I w I was truthful and I was honest and I was like, you know, what? I'm not going to do a crappy review. I mean, on, I'm not going to do a, uh, my subscribers crappy by doing a sugar coated review. And I took a lot of heat on that video. Well, you know, you're doing this and you're saying that, whatever. But in, in what we do, we're going to have to take the hits as well as the good. And you know what? I'll take the hit all day, every day, and twice on Sunday if some kid who's been mowing lawns and busting his behind for a couple weekends and he wanted to buy that air gun and he saw that review and go, you know what, Dad, I'm, I'm not going to buy that one. I'll, maybe I'll save up for a Crossman 2240 and I'll get a custom one from the custom shop or something, or maybe I'll get a Diana bandit and we'll just go that route. You know, I'd rather see that that's an informed decision rather than, Oh, I, you know, I shilled out for them. And, and now, you know, all these people that bought it, something happened just like that. And they're like, Oh, this guy freaking powder, powder coated it, you know? And it's like, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Right. Well, then flash forward to, I mean, a company, let's just say like Grossman, they have something that you reviewed negatively. 
you know, flash forward though, and you review something positively and they make a bunch of sales on that, those sales are, you know, the, 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 the consumer is going to have a lot more faith in them and especially their evolution. If there's a company that's evolved on mm-hmm. their production, they've gotten a lot better at it and the quality is, you know, the direction the company is going in a great direction. I think it is good uh, to be honest for that reason too. Oh, most definitely. Uh, there's been times on the knife community side that I didn't do the video and I got in contact with uh, their production people at whatever company, you know, that I was reviewing the knife and, and I would tell them, Hey, you might want to reconsider this. This is a problem that I'm seeing. And um, a lot of times the companies were very appreciative. There was only one time one company wasn't and it, and it wasn't because they were like mad at me. It was because they had already invested and bought like 15,000 units of something and it was made in China and it was on a container ship and it was, it was coming. So they were like, Oh crap, you know? And I was like, sorry, but I'd rather tell, I'd rather tell them rather than them face a crazy lawsuit because somebody got hurt or, you know what I mean? So in the end, you probably saved them a ton of, one, uh, failures, two, your integrity in the community, because your name's got to stand for something. I mean, when folks, hopefully when they hear, you know, hey, the Wingman 115 channel, they're thinking, okay, this is, this guy's given an honest review with some integrity behind what he's saying. You know, yeah, we're, we're not going to hit grand slams every time, because like you were saying, it's a lot of times it's your opinion on something. And as long as you convey that to folks, I think you're okay. But if folks start coming off like it's an infomercial and, and you know, you're selling snake oil, I think that's where the problems ensue. And I think now, you know, our, our listeners and our viewers, they're, they're smart enough to see the wheat through the chaff now. And I mean, they're making their choice with, views with subscribers with with all that stuff so well now with air guns in particular too there's a lot more brick and mortar stores that actually have those guns in so it's one thing to to see it online and have a concept of it versus going in the store putting your hands on and going wow this feels great or like hey wow this is uh this is a bummer right yeah even my local archery shop now is carrying air guns so, I mean, there, there's definitely a market out there. And, and I think now with the advent of, you know, 30 cals, 357s, 45 cals, 50 cals, and folks are taking deer, they're taking bear, they're taking buffalo, and they're seeing it on hunting videos or hunting shows that it's really bringing air guns into the mainstream. And especially now, let's not forget, you go out and shoot 223 now, a bullet is running close to a dollar round. And plus a background charge and all that. Oh my gosh, yeah. At so least in you, California, you know. You go out with your friends and somebody decides, oh, hey, let me let me shoot your gun. They do a mag dump and you're going, man, that, that was 30 bucks right there. Hope you enjoyed yourself, right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah 
I, I just thought of a funny story. My father-in-law sometimes listens to this stuff. So here like this one, but I was with my father-in-law and he has a two, two, three, and I was taking a couple of shots of his. And I think I, I dumped, you know, just a little ranch rifle and mini 14 and I dumped the last five. I was like, Oh, that was his last rounds. I totally <laughs> felt bad. And I was thinking, man, I just dumped 10 bucks into the jar and didn't even think about him, you know, but poor guy. You know, I, I, I get a lot of people ask me all the time too, hey, let's go out shooting. I go, you buy the ammo, I'll take you out all day. And as soon as I say that, oh, well, you know, hey, I, all of a sudden they're real busy. Oh, you know, I got to, I, I just remembered I got to work overtime or, you know, I got to do this or that. Right. So you mentioned uh, SHOT Show. What was your experience with SHOT Show? Because to me, it was a very, it was a very interesting experience. I've only been once and I'm going to go again, obviously next year, but I'm definitely going to do very different strategies next year, like nicer shoes. I'm going to show up a day or two late. Um, what was your experience? And give us the rundown on what you would do if you were going to SHOT Show. SHOT Show, uh, if folks aren't, your listeners aren't familiar with it, it is Disneyland for big boys. Um, a million square feet of guns, Every, every caliber you can think of, every sort of hunting thing you can think of. Um, even Garrett has even metal detector. Just the amount of money that goes into SHOT Show is just insane. Now, I'm talking like before 2020, before the pandemic hit. And so when I first went to SHOT Show, um, it was probably 2015, I want to say, somewhere around there. And, um, my buddies told me, yeah, you, you got to come out and stay the week. Cause one day just isn't enough. And they, they were right. But I, I like that atmosphere because I'm a way over the top extrovert. So large crowds don't mess with me. You know what I mean? I'm able to get out and talk to folks. I've never been afraid. And a lot of times I was able to score interviews and, uh, booth reviews and stuff i i would just cold call people and whether they were you know a tv star or, or stuff like like the hoffmans from uh, gold rush todd hoffman's in the booth signing autographs so i walk up and i say hey todd how you doing john heffern wingman 115 channel i go uh hey after after your obligation is done here i go would you mind doing a video for me. I have an outdoor channel and I'd love to interview you. He was like, heck yeah, let's do it. So, you know, I, I always had a good time at shot. One year, my daughter went with me, which was really nice because, uh, well, my daughter loves to shoot as well. So that makes it even doubly nice that she knows firearms. She knows how to handle a, a firearm, but, uh, I would put her in front of the camera as well and get a female's perspective on things. And that kind of made me see things also with a little bit different set of eyes, you know, that I normally things that I probably would have passed. She's like, Hey dad, let's check this out. And I'm like, why? And she would tell me why. And I'm like, Oh, Oh yeah, let's check it out then. And we just had a fun time. She, I think she went with me like two years in a row. And we just had a great time. I luckily met up with uh, one of the guys that was actually scheduled to do a podcast. I just hadn't recorded it yet. It was uh, David from Black Arts Design. He does um, barrel bands and other kind of additive manufacturing parts. But I met up with him there and it was really interesting for a good hour or two. Maybe we were walking around and 
I didn't actually talk to that many people at that point. I was really just watching what he was watching and he had an eye for really cool, intricately designed, you know, engineering parts and stuff like that. So I actually saw a lot of stuff that I would not have seen. And it was very, very eye-opening. A lot of things you'll see six months to a year or more before the general public sees. And that's kind of cool. There's a lot of guns that seem to not come to the market too. I've seen that over the years. Yeah. You know, concept guns. Well, yeah, there's a lot of concept stuff. There's a lot of, like, Jesse James was doing uh, 1911 aftermarket gear for a while, which was really cool, you know, because, like, damn, this guy's making freaking awesome motorcycles. Now he's making freaking awesome 1911s and just stuff like that, you know. And you just never know who you're going to bump into. You know, I, I bumped into Steven Seagal one year and I tried to interview him and Steven Seagal is just a larger than life individual. The guy's like, I don't know, six, six. He's like huge. I'm five, six. So, you know, anybody over five, six looks tall to me. And, uh, I'm with my daughter and, uh, somebody else. I think I was at the Condor knife booth talking to Joe flowers and, uh, he's walking by and I go, uh, Hey, Mr. Seagal. I go, uh, can I get an interview with you? You know, and he's got a bodyguard all yoked out with him. And he's like, what's up my friend. And he keeps walking. (laughs) So that was my second and a half of interviewing Steven Seagal, but you just never know who you're going to meet. And, um, I made a lot of good friends, like the folks over at air force air guns, uh, my buddy, Rick Ward, the urban air gunner, he does a lot of stuff for air force air guns. Uh, he does a lot of coyote hunts and pig hunts and stuff like that. And uh, they bring him to SHOT Show. So he was like, hey, man, I'm down at the Air Force booth. You know, and I went down and they're like, oh, man, you just missed Lou Ferrigno was here. He's big in the air guns. And I was like, Lou Ferrigno's big in the air guns? He goes, oh, hell yeah. He's shooting a, a Talon or a Condor, one, one of the two. He, uh, you know, he actually lives, no joke, one mile away from me. And I, I see him you know, drive. He, That's how I know. He, I, I kind of know where his house is. I'll never tell anyone because there's all kinds of weirdos. But he, um, yeah, he lives up in uh, Central California. He seems like just a salt of the earth. I've never heard anybody say a bad thing about Lou Ferrigno. No, I haven't either. Just and when, people seem like he's really nice. Then when I heard, you know, he was uh, in the air guns, I'm like, damn, not, you know, now just went up another notch. Then I found out that he was like um, a deputy sheriff as well, like a part-time deputy sheriff up there on their search and rescue teams and stuff like that. And I'm like, this guy is freaking awesome. Yeah, I was at a, I was at a local range and someone, a bystander, said, hey, I just saw another one. I saw, um, you know, I, I think he said the Hulk. I saw the Hulk shooting. Uh, it took me a second to connect the dots. I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but I guess he had brought in some air guns to a range. But I, I actually sent, after that, I sent a request. I said, hey, or I should say invitation. I sent an invitation. You know, like shot in the dark is not going to happen. But I just sent one anyway because you never know. So I just sent one and said, hey, if you ever want on. But it was pretty neat hearing, uh, hearing that the Hulk was into air guns. Hit, hit him up on uh, Instagram. He's always on Instagram and hit him with a DM. He might, you never know. The, that's what's so cool. The worst thing somebody's going to say is no. And 
you're not any worse off than you were before. So yeah. if he says, yeah, hey, sky's the limit. And that's how, that's how I've kind of run the channel the past 15 years. It's just like grip and rip. Let's take a chance. You know, that's how I became friends with Matt Graham, who was on Dual Survival and Dude, Dude You're Screwed and uh, a couple other shows. And gosh, when me and my buddy Andy Tran, we would do live shows five, six years ago, you know, I invited Matt and he was like, sure, come on. What we forget is that they're just people like you and I just trying to make a living and trying to live their best life. And that that's all anybody's really trying to do. But I think there is a little bit of our community online, at least that do kind of fall into the trap of, you know, putting some kind of reverence on these people that is beyond, you know, beyond human. It's kind of ridiculous. It's like, just step back. You know, they don't want that. They just want you to watch their content. And if you like it, say, Hey, I like it. And if you don't. Well, it's like that in every community, you know, in the nineties and early two thousands, I was heavy into mountain bike racing, used to do 24 hour mountain bike races and it can it can get very uh clicky you know with the little clubs and such but you know that's a small percentage even even like in the air gun community you know there's still the little clicks and stuff like that but in the average person for the 99 percent of the people that are using air guns or listening to the podcast or watching my videos they're just plinking with their family, maybe in the backyard. They're hunting a little bit. A lot of them aren't competing uh, per se, other than maybe, you know, hey, I'll bet you 20 bucks or, you know, or a 12 pack of monster energy drinks that we hit that gong at 100 yards or something, you know. But for the most part, everybody I've met in the community has just been pretty solid. Yeah, it's a really nice sport. I mean, people are really kosher with one another in general. You know, it, it, the shooters, some of the, there's the brand loyal people that can get a little crazy, you know, and they, there's where like some of the cult followings start happening. I'm not going to drop any names, so I don't want to start a dumpster fire. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there there's some people that will like fight to the death for whatever brand, you know, that that they're using. And I mean... That's okay. You know, you got football teams where there's fanatics as well. So, you know, you got to take a look, everything with a little bit of a grain of salt and just run with it. But at the end of the day, the idea is one, hopefully we can introduce folks into a sport that we love doing, because whether we want to believe it or not, if we don't recruit younger people into our sport, we're not going to have a sport. So that's where I think it's our obligation, people listening, people watching my videos, to take a family member, to take a friend, to take them out and introduce them to the sport. And if they like it, maybe start off with a, uh, a gauntlet or maybe a break, a, a gamo big cat or whatever, you know? And if you really like that, then you progress to, the next item that you like and go from there. What are you foreseeing for the future of your channel and where you, where you're wanting to go? Like, what are you uh, planning for the next year? Let's say, well, now I got to remember I work a full-time job. And so, you know, I work about 50 hours a week, but I usually, 
usually Dana and I from Mountain Sports Air Guns, we try to get together at least twice a year. He lives up in Ventura. I'm in San Diego. Uh, folks looking on the map go, oh, yeah, that's just a drive up the road. But you got to remember, you got to get through L.A. So <laughs> trying to get trying to get through L.A. can be a bear sometimes. So when a lot of times when we meet up, I'll leave the house at like 4 a.m. That way I can get through L.A. by 6. But um, I'd like to probably go out of state. That would be kind of cool. Um, there's some talks of I've been invited to like go to Georgia in that area, maybe some pig hunting, but it, it all depends, you know, if we can, if we can get the time. Um, the cool thing is, is that just bought a house in uh, Florida. So if you guys want to bum out there, there you go. I had a friend just say that today. They go, Hey, I got an offer to go to Florida and, uh, there's a guy that wants me to go down there and iguana hunt with him. I'm like, Hey, that'd be fun as hell to go out there. I go, you cannot er eradicate those fast enough. They're just taking over Florida. No, they have so many eggs in them. I actually had an iguana for 16 years, a domestic one here in California. And she's actually a cool pet. They're, they're creature creatures of habit though. They, you know, if you fed, if you got an iguana addicted to ice cream, they will eat ice cream and nothing else until they die. Um, so they're very interesting <laughs> animals, and they're they're very strong with their whip, with their tail whip. They can break a dog's leg, um, not a massive dog, but you know, like a medium sized dog. So they're they're very fascinating um, creatures of habit and just pets in general. But as pests, I mean, they're they're horrible for the state of Florida. Oh yeah, they're just tearing up the communities. Uh, a couple of years ago, we went down there. I did an airboat ride in the Everglades, and we went down to Florida Keys. And I mean, we're we're down there in the hotel, and just around the pool was just five or six big iguanas. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, it's like Jurassic Park and they down got here." It was big poops too. They can have like dog sized poops. Oh, it's insane! But I mean, some of the, those guys riding the canals and such. I mean be a challenge you know we we got our ground ground squirrels out here and for folks that don't know you know they think oh you're hunting squirrels these ground squirrels folks do not realize how much damage they do to agriculture to trees to plants if somebody has a ranch um especially down here avocado groves and uh places that grow almonds and stuff like that they're just killing the root system and then um, one time I got a call to go out to a horse farm because it had been a year where we had had some good rain. And the place was so infested with ground squirrels that the guy had lost like five or six corrals that he had had on a hillside because they had tunneled and burrowed out the hill so bad that when the water ran down through there, it just lifted up the whole hillside and it just collapsed. So when me and a couple buddies got on scene, he was like, I go, how bad, how many want to get? He's like, get them all. We ended the day at like 150 and we didn't even put a dent in, in the place. Holy cow. It was, and the amount of snakes that they attract too was just insane with rattlers and such. It was just nuts. But yeah, uh, here up in, um, 
like Montana de Oro area by uh, Morro Bay. I, I go hiking out there and there's there's some rattlesnakes out there, but I'm sure down by by you guys, there's a lot more. There's been times down here, you know, where I'm out and I go on some ranch, some ranches down here because the ranchers are like, yeah, clear them out because if cattle steps in one of those holes, you know, and breaks a leg, we got to put that that cow down, you know, you've just lost a paycheck. And there's times, you know, I'll, I'll harvest a squirrel and I'll go out there to get a confirmation. And I've stepped on more than one or two big fat rattlesnakes that at that point are going down into the burrow. And they're, they're tough. Uh, ground squirrel hunting will make you a better hunter. One, their vision is just impeccable. They're able to see color any movement at all they're gonna pick up on it so hunting ground squirrels with my air gun has actually made me a better traditional archery hunter in the regards to being able to spot stock to be able to move a little more fluid and not so like robotic and um it i mean it's definitely i i love it i love it better than deer hunting just because of the challenge of it and um where can people follow your uh your content all you have to do is google wingman 115 all together everything my youtube channel facebook instagram twitter all that stuff will be right there linked that's the easiest way i have most of the stuff that i that i post i post on instagram and uh youtube um, just cause I think, uh, Facebook is throttling our content uh, over the years. I think anything to do with firearms, air guns, sharp pointy things, they're kind of like burying in the, in their algorithm. They're kind of shadow banning. It's just my opinion on that. I have no proof, but you know, when you have, 30 something hundred followers on a Facebook page, you should get more than one like on a photo. Yeah, no doubt. And you know, they definitely aren't sponsoring your content or helping you out. I mean, no, it all, it only goes in one direction. What's your uh, thoughts before we leave? Uh, what's your thoughts on the Twitter, Twitter buyout by Elon? I think it's, I think it's great, but um, it's interesting seeing all these people saying, Oh, we were objective the whole time. And now they're freaking out. It's like, well, that kind of uh, spills the beans on your position. Yeah, you know, um, as with anything that happens, whether it's a crisis or I usually take 48 to 72 hours to kind of like process the information that's coming in. So I don't know, we're going to have to wait and see, you know, uh, I, I think they put security measures in place to where somebody can't go in and like sabotage or change the code or something. But, um, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, I don't, I really don't know. I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, hopefully that we'll be able to share content again. Cause I kind of like weaned myself off Twitter because I didn't, you know, showing links to hunting videos or photos. I didn't, think uh that one it would be received by anybody on twitter at the time you know that the juice wasn't worth the squeeze but i mean 
Hickok 45, a gun channel. I've known Hickok now for gosh, a long time. He's posting again. I mean, he's testing it out. So I saw, I saw that today actually. So if Hickok doesn't uh, get banned, I mean, maybe, you know, I, I think anything that you can use to, to self promote you, to introduce you to a new marketplace is a good thing. Well, let's close with that. Uh, John, thank you so much for coming on the Atlas Air Guns podcast. It was a real pleasure having you on. You're always welcome back on. And it's been a really dynamic conversation tonight. So just thank you for uh, your time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. And anytime you want to chat, give me a call. We'll sit down. We'll have a chat. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Atlas Airguns podcast. Make sure to like with a five-star rating, share, and subscribe. Have a question? Email atlasairguns at gmail.com.